Hello and welcome to this week's episode. We got Vanessa Bennett on, who's an author, licensed psychotherapist, clinical entrepreneur, and mental health content creator. Her therapeutic approach integrates years of study and practice in depth, Buddhist, and yoga psychology. She co-hosts the Cheaper Than Therapy podcast, leads soul-based retreats and workshops, and creates and facilitates curriculum for nonprofit and corporate training events and conferences. She's one of the leading experts in relationships and to me is an icon in the world of how we deal with ourselves, which helps us deal with others. In a world that is so confusing, always pointing fingers at each other, whose fault it is. There's a book that her and her partner, John Kim, wrote, It's Not Me, It's You. But really, the book is all about taking a hard look at ourselves and the patterns that we create. And I'm so excited to have her on on the show this week. Let's get right into it. Welcome to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist. We have Vanessa Bennett on. She is someone who is, I truly admire just as uh, someone who specializes in relationships and works with relationships. Basically every day for the past two years, I work with couples and relationships. And she's like a guiding light for so many therapists and so many human beings who are navigating the relationship world. And um, before I get too much into boosting someone's ego, which I can do, if you want to hire me, <laughs> I'm more than happy to be a hype, hype man. man. Um, but Vanessa, can you introduce yourself to the listeners so they get a little taste of who you are, and then we'll go right into the uh, the questions and, and what you're here for. Yeah. So yeah, my name is Vanessa. Um, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist here in California. Um, and I came to this by way of the corporate world. I did not originally set out to be a therapist. I was actually in advertising for a long time uh, in New York and felt like the psychology and the knowledge of the inner workings that I was using against people would be better suited to be used for people. (laughs) So (laughs) made the transition. Um, And with that transition, left a relationship, left New York behind, packed some suitcases, moved to Los Angeles. It was really kind of a a total 360. on my life. But so now I have a little one. So I'm a mom of a three-year-old. Uh, my partner is also a therapist, which people love to ask me questions about uh, because it's like, what is that like? Two therapists in a relationship. Do you guys just sit around and analyze each other all day? I get that question all the time. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm a content creator. I like to call myself kind of a mental health entrepreneur, right? So also have a podcast, just wrote a book, uh, all the things, right? Nowadays, I feel like we're all master plate spinners. Kind of what we do. <laughs> 100%. I was not even going to ask about you and John because he's not here. Um, and, uh, you know, but it is a funny thing. I get asked as a therapist myself, like, oh my gosh, you work with couples all the time. You must be killing it. I'm like, no, I fight with my wife and I argue with my wife all the time. Yep. Because I'm a human. Like, it's very easy to help other people when it's not in my life, but my own stuff, my own defenses, my own breakers that you talk about in the book and my own things that I have to get adjusted with or pivot or work on play a huge role within my personal life. I turn that stuff off when I'm a therapist, like a a couple or someone I'm working with doesn't trigger those things because it's not my life. Totally. So people are so surprised when like they hear that. And uh, I think it must be really fun to have a therapist as a, as a, as a partner because they can understand some of the struggles of the burden or the responsibility that it is to, to be a, a, a mental health professional. I was going to ask that 
you know, the question that I had about you guys, you and John, is I find it amazing that the two of you, this is like a second or third thing that you guys have done in your career. Mm. This is like a later on choice of like, I was in my late 30s, 40s. Let me be a therapist and let me start a new relationship. Yeah. Versus the classical thing of in your early 20s, deciding on your future forever, which is such a huge, uh, ridiculous concept. How is that you guys going through the beginning stages of relationship as well as just starting off in your careers that you guys, I think, fit so beautifully into that world? Yeah. You know, first of all, we used to live a lot shorter lives. So I think this concept of we used to choose the way that our life looked, you know, at 16, until 17, about 45, 18. you know, exactly. 45, 50, like, you know, happily ever after or till death do this part was not that long. Right. Um, and now it's long. It's real long. So I, I'm very much in this space of, um, I don't believe in celebrating longevity as the only marker for success in a relationship. Um, I am very much in the space of congratulating people when they say that they're getting divorced instead of saying, I'm sorry, because I think for 99% of the people that I've, I've known personally, but also clients, when they get to that point, they're actually not that upset about it. Of course, there's grief. Of course, there's the coulda, woulda, shoulda, all of that. But when they get to that space right, of acceptance, they're like, oh, I should have done this years ago, or I'm so glad that I did this, or my partner and I are actually better friends and co-parents than we were in relationships or whatever. And I hear it so frequently. And people are almost ashamed to admit that because we still live in a culture of I'm so sorry, as if that's a failure, right? Mm-hmm. Um And so I think John and I both share a lot of those beliefs and we shared that long before we met, which is probably partly what brought us together. Um, You know, he had been married and divorced. I had been engaged and broken it off. We, to your point, this is both of our second careers, if not third or fourth, God only knows. And I think we both just really share this passion or this idea of constantly be evolving And can that be okay? Can it be okay that we're always a work in progress? Can it be okay that we're tomorrow I could wake up and decide I want to do something new or I am a new person? Um, You know, and if you, if you, I think in a relationship, if you foster that in yourself, but in each other, number one, I think it takes away a lot of the, well, the codependent bullshit that we all have, which is like, I own this person, right? We are married or whatever that relationship looks like. And so because of that, I am somehow owed something from this person, right? Because I I now own them and vice versa. It really helps take that out of the equation when I look at my partner as a constantly evolving, ever-changing, you know, layers upon layers of the onion to constantly be peeling. Um, Yeah. And so I think that was like a really shared, um, I don't know, belief or maybe mindset that him and I had. And it's partly what I think keeps us going. Yeah. And and I think that one of the things that I see often with a lot of couples is either this failure of timeline or expectation that society has put in or this understanding or, or belief that if I don't do this now, I'm never going to be successful. I can't Mm -hmm. have a life if I don't have, I'm not married with kids. And and you actually said a line in the book, you know, it's not me, it's you. um, That really struck me as something that I, I say often and I believe wholeheartedly as a therapist who works with couples, it's not your job and might not even happen that you are going to quote unquote, save or protect this relationship 
but help with other things that might open other avenues or doors, whether it's communication, understanding of self, awareness, codependency styles, um, you know, anything under the sun. And it might lead the relationship to fizzle or end, or it might strengthen the relationship. And I think that's very scary for a lot of couples who are coming to couples therapy. Totally. How, How do you feel when you say that line? Or you have that first session with a couple when people are looking to you to to, to save something mm-hmm. or an idea of something or, or maybe an ideal of society, whatever that might mean, when it's not so simple and yeah. maybe at that point by the time they're getting to you, they're in such a crisis that it's too hard maybe to get back to some semblance of, of connection and love. Yeah. I mean, I, I think... I think you're speaking to a couple of really important points here. So first and foremost, I would say if um, on paper, couples therapy might look like it's not the most effective, air quotes, effective. And I would say, and I've said this a million times in my career and in my life, that's because the vast majority of people who come to couples therapy come when it's too late, <laughs> right? It's not that the couples like therapy- seven years, like five to seven years past the- Right. When it should have first been. Exactly. When you smell the milk. You know, it's not that couples therapy isn't effective. It's that we as a society don't value, again, this idea of evolution, constantly looking inward, constantly evolving, checking ourselves, challenging our bullshit. Right. We don't we don't value that as a society. Instead, we value the status quo and we value not rocking the boat until it gets to the place where it's so uncomfortable that if something doesn't change, like, I feel like I'm going to die, right? Um, Rather than just getting more comfortable with being uncomfortable, which is really what change and evolution is going to bring, right? Um, And so, yeah, I I think you hit that on the head. I I think that's important for people to understand. You know, I say to a lot of people, obviously they're not my clients yet, but people that I have conversations with, when then somebody says, well, how do I know when it's the right time to go? And I say, it's always the right time to go. I actually, one of my, some of my favorite couples that I've worked with are couples who are new enough in their relationship and that are actually coming to start understanding attachment styles, understanding communication, understanding their bad habits that will inevitably turn into massive pain points if they don't start understanding them now. Right. Um, I love that work because it feels like we're on a team. It feels like we're all there to kind of take this third party, which is the relationship, right? And and strengthen it as best as we can, give it the kind of best shot that it has at being um, successful. Um, but again, successful is in the eye of the beholder. That could be longevity or that could just mean I'm fulfilled by this relationship, right? Whether that's two years or 20. So I think that's important as well. Um, you know, I, I think too... Again, I, this is a societal thing. I think this idea of like keep the keep the skeletons in the closet. You know, we don't we don't air our dirty laundry. I, I have seen a shift. I think generationally, we're seeing a shift, right? I think millennial generation and younger is really bucking this idea of um, the stigma with therapy. You know, people are more open to talking about their problems. They're they're more open just to talking about who they are as a, a fluid human, whether that's sexuality, whether that's gender, whether that's whatever. So I have a lot of hope that you and I are going to start seeing more people coming to us that are pre-crisis mode um, because it does, it's it's like we're starting to look at our mental health just like we would look at the gym, right? You don't go to the gym when you've got such a horrible, well, some people do, 
But the idea with the gym is that you go as upkeep, as maintenance. You don't go when your doctor is like, you're going to die if you yeah. don't, right? And um, and therapy and mental health should be exactly the same. I agree with you in the way that I love working with clients when they come before just to set themselves up for whatever success they view. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I find that exciting as a therapist. I'm like, great, we have a blank slate. Let's 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 kind of reshape this or let's... Let's work on this. Let's figure this out. What the relationship means to you versus being five to 15 years in the relationship already where the patterns might be set or the expectations might be crushed or the resentment might be placed and the poison and the toxicity is just like eroding the foundation and you have to reshape or reseal that stuff. It's a lot harder. And I find as a therapist pressure. Yeah. Which if I'm not seeing something, I'm like, well, what are we doing here? We keep repeating the same conversation. Have you ever told a, ther- a client that? I'm always curious. Like, have you ever told a client that you don't think it's going to work or that they shouldn't they shouldn't be together? Not straight out. Yeah. But I definitely will say like, this is just concerning the way this is going. Yeah. Because I don't think it's, I also don't think it's my responsibility or job to tell someone, hey, by the way, get out. Yeah. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, what are you doing here? Because in the end, that's their decision. But I do notice, like I maybe I'm, I think you might feel the same way, and I'll put it out there for anyone who's listening. Within the first session or two, I can kind of gauge mm-hmm. where it's going, mm-hmm. or or how productive it might be for where they what they're asking for. Mm-hmm. Like like I'll have a couple who has extreme you know uh, affairs. They've had affairs for years, and now they're like, well, now we're I'm tired of it. They're so hurt and just want revenge to like air out the dirty laundry. They're not there to kind of repair. They don't want to repair. They want to kind yeah. of rip this person a new one and be like, you hurt my, you hurt me. Mm-hmm. And I'm there for it, you know, to support them, whatever they might need. But I'll be the referee and be like, okay, that's enough. Like mm-hmm. he gets it or she gets it. Like mm-hmm. sometimes it's a, a little too much, but, but it really depends on the person. It depends on, on my relationship with them. If I'm working with someone for years. I might have more comfort to say something straight up versus right off the bat. Be like, what are you guys doing? Mm-hmm. But I might say something like, what are we doing here? Yeah. Right. Can I like shock them and to be like, oh, I don't know. I didn't think yeah. about that. You know, and there's something that you said that I think a lot of people struggle with. And, and I want to maybe, I don't know if they're connected as much as they are, maybe different. The idea of something of the beauty of contrast that you talk about in the book, I think is so important for people to understand. Because I think there is this expectation that if we don't like everything the same, this is never going to work. So can you talk about maybe some of the important things that maybe need to be or it's important to be connected with or have some similar value base versus the things that are, it's okay and actually creates more depth of the relationship? Yeah, I think what you said, values, I think that's probably the most important. Uh, A lot of my clients relationships when they're in that phase of, you know, dating, exploring who they are, exploring what they want. We'll do the exercise of non-negotiables versus preferences and get Mm -hmm. really familiar with their own internal lists. And I would say 99% of those people in the beginning can't even actually make those lists because a lot of people coming to therapy, part of the biggest struggle is I don't know who the hell I am. Right. 
Because again, we live in a codependent society. We're not taught to appreciate our internal landscape. We're taught to listen to the external more than the internal. So, so much of the, at least the early stages of therapy is really starting to build a foundation of self, right? So really creating that list of non-negotiables so that when you are in a space of meeting another person and there is chemistry and connection, you can hold yourself accountable. You can hold yourself accountable to this list that you have created. And so I don't care that the sex is mind-blowing. I don't care that you can't stop thinking about this person. I don't care that they seem on paper like the perfect person for you. If they have three or four of the glaring non-negotiables that you were the one that decided was a non-negotiable, then we need to really sit and talk about why you're so willing to abandon yourself in order to be partnered, in order to chase a feeling, in order to chase a high, right? Um, I see that happen a lot. So it, it is this this real inner work of understanding what my non-negotiables are, what my values are. That is important that you find somebody that is in alignment with you, right? It doesn't need to be completely apples to apples, but there, there does need to be an, an alignment, right? Now, the rest of it, what I might call preferences, is is less important, right? And And honestly, I would say kind of boring. Like, I don't want to be with somebody who's exactly like me because there would be no challenge there. There would be no kind of grist for the mill. There would be no reason or opportunity to look in the mirror and have to do the inner work. Now, I think a lot of people want a relationship just to be easy peasy, smooth sailing, don't ruffle any feathers. Um, To me, that's a recipe for a very long till death to us part. Right now, I'm not saying you want to be in constant conflict all the time, forever and ever, but there is something to be said for somebody who challenges you, you know, and for somebody who, again, kind of holds up a mirror and and you get to see, oh, shit, that's a pattern of mine that I do not like. And I should probably do some work around that. And had I been with somebody who was identical to me, I might not have had that mirror shown to me. Right. And so things like that, you know, like, let's say, for example, attachment styles. This might not be a preference. Obviously, this is something that we kind of come into relationships with, but it is very common for the opposite sides of the spectrum to find each other, right? Why is that? It's because we activate the shit out of each other. It's because our unconscious is drawn to something or someone that's going to activate it in order to heal old wounds, in order to right old wrongs, in order to change old patterns, right? Mm -hmm. So if we can look at the the differences, the opposite as that, as opportunity for growth, um, it's just so ripe, right? Versus saying, this person activates me, they must not be right for me, period, heart stop. Because um, again, it's like, you're, you're really setting yourself up for a boring, <laughs> a boring life if you're going to find somebody <laughs> who's just smooth all the time, you know? And I also think people, people conflate contrast versus conflict, mm, right? Like, it doesn't have to be that you don't, okay, I might not like the same TV shows, the same kind of yeah. food. Um, I might like to go to museums and it makes you your skin crawl because you yeah. want to jump out of your you know face. Yeah. I like sports. You don't, whatever the classic preferences of, you like to hike. I think hiking is boring, camping, yeah. right? All these things that are out, outdoors versus indoors. Really? Really? That's the thing that you're like, sorry, can't, nah. But yeah. every value is so solidified as similar or a perspective that is growth oriented or open minded. That's the stuff you're fight. Like that's the stuff you're conflicted with. Yeah, right. like, that's the stuff you're focusing on. Is that we don't like the same hockey team? Mm-hmm. Really? Like so? To me, I like to to do something with my clients of this thing that Adam Grant talked about often of the maximizers for satisficers concept. 
mm-hmm. right? I don't know if you're familiar with it or not. I always thought it was a fake word. I'm like, these are made up words um, of like, sometimes I think the chronic daters or chronic relationship people who just can't find that person or be content are maximized. They're just looking for the perfect match yeah. versus, and I'm not saying you have to settle, but that this makes you happy or fulfilled yeah. is there's a big difference between the two and contrast doesn't have to be conflict. It could just be something that's different, a different mm-hmm. flavor that you've never tried before. And if we're going with the beautiful mindset that you're bringing to this conversation of growth oriented and evolution of a human being, if you expect someone to be when you were in your twenties and you met them, that now you're in your thirties and forties to be the exact same person. And you can't handle that. You don't understand human beings right. as we grow. I'm an Orthodox Jew. Religiously, where I started is very different than where I am now. Mm-hmm. I came off of being under my parents' roof, mm-hmm. high school education, studying abroad for two two years in Israel. I am not the same person. I'm in my 30s. Right. I have my own mindset, my own growth-oriented perspective that is not where I was and doesn't yep. mean that's bad. But I got someone behind me and next to me and in front of me, around me, who's with me for that ride of understanding myself mm-hmm. and not judging me or putting me down for it. And I want to talk about the idea of this idea of disconnect and this idea of not feeling it anymore. Yeah. Someone asked me, a client asked me a while back and I was looking through your content and something hit me. I don't remember the exact post, whatever it was, it was a while back. Someone asked me, do all relationships fizzle? Mm. And I wanted to pose that question to you because I know you talk about in the book, but the idea of the well, you know, we're not feeling it anymore. Something's wrong and you turn it inwards. Mm-hmm. And I would love to hear your perspective on fizzling in relationships and not feeling it anymore. And if you're not feeling it, how do you reconnect to the person that you have connected to before? Or is it this time to just be done with a relationship because you're not feeling it? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of touch points there. I think it's dangerous for us to say just because I'm not feeling it anymore physically, right? That chemistry that I should end the relationship because there is a natural ebb and flow. There's a natural expansion and contraction uh, to everything in relationships, including sexual chemistry, right? There's life, there's stress, there's kids, there's career changes, there's deaths. There's all these things that happen um, that have a natural effect on who we are as sexual beings, right? There's evolution and growth just as a person. There's understanding the self more. Um, And so I do think it's interesting when clients are very quick to say like, oh, well, I don't want to sleep with this person, so we must be over. Um, Again, it goes back to, okay, well, does this person still feel in alignment with your values? Because if that's the case, I'm not here to say you should or shouldn't be in that relationship, but I am here to say maybe you should pump the brakes a little. Um, and, and again, like decide if you're still fulfilled spiritually, um, emotionally, you know, if you still feel partnered and connected to this person, um, maybe we can slow down and use this as an opportunity, like you said, to kind of turn inward. Right. So there's been a lot of, I guess, interesting self-understanding that I've come to find, I suppose, in the last few years around this topic because I have a kid, right? And it's the it's my only kid and she's three. I'm very early in it. And how much that has changed my relationship to my body, my partner's body, the idea of sex, the idea of being exhausted all the time and what that does to you, right? Um, but there have been things that I've learned, like different desire types, for example, that I had no idea even existed. I mean, I was already a practicing therapist before I even like learned about this. Um, 
I also really started to understand and come into an appreciation for the importance of the integration of the masculine and feminine dynamics in relationships and, and the play that they have in polarity and how important it is for us to have polarity in relationships. Mm. Now, that's not even just in, in, in heteronormative relationships. That's also in same-sex relationships. Polarity is very important. And polarity comes from an integration in the self of the masculine and feminine. Our society very much bastardizes and minimizes the importance of the feminine, right? In anybody, men, women, it doesn't matter societally, right? We live in a patriarchal society that says anything feminine is wrong and bad and should be cut off from self. That has done a number on our sexual polarity and our relationships. Mm-hmm. Because when I feel the most sexually attracted to my partner, it's when he feels the most integrated with his masculine and feminine mm-hmm. and vice versa. When he feels the most sexually attracted to me, it's when I feel like I can actually bring forth my feminine and stop living so much in my masculine, which is what we teach women to do too. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole kind of realm of things that we could really do ourselves a big favor, peel that back and start looking and examining yourself and how you show up in your relationships some of the things, maybe unprocessed trauma, some of the bullshit about sex and relationships we haven't ever really processed what we were taught or not taught and see how that's affecting it, right? Mm -hmm. Before you throw the baby out with the bathwater, I think we would do ourselves a favor by just looking inward and and really saying like, what is this really? I don't know if that was, that was a very long-winded answer, but I'm passionate about talking about for sure. Please be long-winded because I think that one of the things that I truly before I even got to know you and your work, the thing that I think everyone's attracted to about John is the sass straight up, no, like no BS rawness of truth or feelings or thoughts. Mm -hmm. And I think that you guys combining on this book, and I think you do the same thing, by the way. Um, I think sometimes better than him. It's okay. Um, uh, (laughs) You're cooler. I know he does CrossFit (laughs) and he's cool and everything, but like, Um, and I find that to write a book like you guys did, so co- and I'm sure it was not so easy, <laughs> and I'm sure it took a lot of you know intense conversations and realness of of what you wanted and how you wanted the book to be and what you said and the different parts and how they fit. But the honesty runs through. Mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest honest things that you guys talk about that I think is very scary for a lot of people. What was the breakers conversation? Because to me, I don't think people have ever, I've read a lot of therapy books. I read a lot. My wife makes fun of me that my biggest expense is books. I just, I read and I read and she's like, why do you need another one? I'm like, I have ADHD. So I read like eight books at once and I read like a chapter here. (laughs) It's like, why do you need another one? I'm like, cause I'm bored of the ones that I have. She's like, you have 15 on your nightstand. It's like, that's not enough. Um, (laughs) <laughs> it's a real problem. I I'm like, I just, sometimes it's like, I read that one and I'm getting a little tired of the writing or the, yep, yep. I could not put your book down. Oh, thank you. Because it just was everything that I believe as a therapist and as a human in a relationship, the breakers conversation was so honest and real. Can you talk about, you know, and I love the metaphor. I think we have to have metaphors as a therapist or like, mm-hmm. I think we have to sign a contract somewhere that says, if we don't have good metaphors, we're done. Well, I mean, that's the unconscious language, right? So if right? we weren't speaking a metaphor, our unconscious wouldn't know what we were talking about. It wouldn't about. put anything into perspective. Yeah. The breakers, just to give perspective for people, is like 
the things that keep pushing against the narrative or the things that we are trying to get past. And we're so afraid to push back to me. I think of like Moana, Mm. like of like, Oh, we don't go past this water because no one's done it. Yeah. And it's dangerous. It's scary. It's scary out there. We don't know. There's a lot of big waves and then she gets over it. And then it's well, not smooth sailing because that would be a boring movie, but it gets her adventure is everything then starts. Everything Mm -hmm. starts there. So can you talk about breakers and relationships and why some people, or maybe a lot of people are afraid to push past them, maybe don't know how to, um, and where we come in as therapists or where they can come in for themselves? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think going back a little bit to this idea of non-negotiables and preferences, I think, you know, as a society, we're very much a society of comfort. So, you know, Jack Hornfield always says, it's like, it's too hot, turn the AC on. It's too cold, turn the heat on, right? Like we don't like to be uncomfortable. Um, And as human beings, generally, we're going to go for whatever feels the most comfortable. But comfort, and again, smooth sailing, is not always the best recipe for a a long, you know, a relationship that has longevity, but also has like that fulfillment aspect, right? And so the breakers is really this, I mean, it's definitely a Johnism, but it's it's really this idea of it's these things that pop up that immediately make you go, oh, no, not this one. Nope, can't do it. Got to end the relationship. This is the breaker, right? This is the, the breaking wave is where that comes from. It's the thing that just seems too, not necessarily big to insurmount, but basically just this thing that's giving me enough pushback that I'm I'm ready to kind of walk away and throw my hands up. The thing is, to use your Moana example, on the other side of the breaker is where her life starts, is where her adventure starts. It's where her call to life and action starts, right? And for a lot of us, not just in romantic relationships, but also even in like friend relationships, so many of us drop off the second it gets a little turbulent, the second it gets a little hard, the second there's any kind of you know struggle in any way that we don't make it to what could be so beautiful and so fulfilling on the other side. And so I think as a concept, breakers is really just a call for people to stop giving up so easily, right? Stop jumping off, you know, bailing off the the surfboard the second the waves get a little rocky when you really conceptually can understand if I can ride this out, there could be some incredible beauty on the other side. Now, look, I have to say this because I'm a therapist. You always got to caveat everything. No one is saying, stay in a toxic relationship. No one is saying that if somebody you're, you're being abused, that that's a breaker that you, you know, no one is talking about that kind of shit, but we're talking about, again, like you were saying, it's like, oh, we don't like all the same things. Like, oh, I'm an outdoors person and they're a homebody. Oh, you know, on the surface, people might say, oh, I don't know. Or I hear the term red flags all the time and I hate it. I hate how often yeah. we use the term red flags. That and gaslighting is so yeah, overused oh God, now. Don't even get me started on the gaslighting and the narcissism. I would love to get you started on it. <laughs> narcissism too, right? Um, this idea of red flags, I, I swear the number of times I've heard it and the number of times I've gone, what is that bringing up for you? Like, again, with all these terms, let's stop putting them on the other people and start looking in the mirror, right? Because you can use the word red flag all you want and and use that as a reason to stop being friends with somebody or stop dating somebody or whatever the case may be. You're you're not learning anything in that process, right? It's like Harriet Lerner always talks about like how quick we are to go to the cutoff. We're quick to the cutoff. We skip over the work yeah. that actually can happen before the cutoff. And what happens before the cutoff is actually usually that's the good shit. That's the stuff that builds intimate, vulnerable, amazingly fulfilling relationships. Um, but it's not easy. 
And, you know, we're a little, we're a little too squeamish of things that aren't easy. <laughs> it's so interesting that when I, when I challenge clients to do hard work in a relationship, the question I always get is, but is it worth it? Yeah. yeah. Right. Is it worth it? This yeah, might not work time. out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, the end result is not what I'm asking you. Yeah. We all want that promise. We all want to see the finish line. You know, we all want to be on level, let's say two of a hundred level game. And we want the cheat code. We want to know what the big boss is on level a hundred so that we can defeat it before we're even at level three. You know, um, I mean, again, I think it's like human nature. I get it. You know, we're, we're risk averse. We want to be able to see the path in front of us. The more comfortable we become personally with not knowing, with not having an outcome, with the process of surrendering, right? The more fulfilling our life and our relationships is going to be, are going to be. Bottom line, that is the work that we need to get comfortable doing with ourselves Mm -hmm. is I have to get comfortable with surrender. I've got to get comfortable with not knowing the outcome and not being in control because I am chokeholding everything that could potentially be the most amazing experience or relationship in my life because I'm so stuck on the idea that I got to know, you know? And where, where's the line then to letting go and then not, and, and being like a doormat, so to speak, and letting someone else take over a relationship or dictate what you need or want or hope. Where's that line? Like, okay, I got to surrender, of course, to myself and to the truth of that. This is not in my control. Mm-hmm. But then a lot of people are afraid to give up control because then someone else might take over control. Mm. So, how, how, do, how do both people kind of give into that idea without losing self or losing direction or losing focus? Well, partly you have no control over the other person and whether or not they're going to surrender in the relationship. So mm-hmm. you can only be responsible for yourself, period, right? Um, I think if we are worried that if we let go of control, the other person will step in and take it, that to me feels like a really a really big invitation to go inward because <laughs> that to me feels like some childhood shit is what that yeah. feels like. You know, um, if you have put yourself in a relationship with somebody who will take control and control you when you let go of the rope, uh, I don't, I mean, is that a relationship that you should be in to begin with? Like if you really <laughs> believe that about that person, um, why are you with them? You know, I mean, listen, I, I can be a little, I don't know. I'll call it harsh. Maybe, maybe my clients wouldn't call it harsh, but there have definitely been times where I'm like, here's the thing. You chose them. You can shit talk that person all you want and talk about how horrible they are and how they did this. You chose them. So maybe it would be more beneficial to us in our work together to stop pointing the finger at why they're so horrible and why they've done this, or they're again, taking control. I'm so scared if I do this, you're going to do that. And start doing a little work and understanding around why you were drawn to that kind of person to begin with. Right? I think we would all benefit from pointing that finger back at ourselves. I love that because I think this, we're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm like, but you were dating them for seven years. It's not like this just came out. Yeah. You're 10 years into the relationship. You just happen to be married now for three. Yep. And all of a sudden you've been living together for longer. I mean, it was there. It's always and, been there. You know, you talk about this idea. I think the back of the book has like a like a cheat sheet to kind of some of the, the main points mm-hmm. of some of the takeaways. 
which I would highly suggest not going to first because that takes uh-huh. away the beauty of the book. Um, this is not spark notes for anyone who might be listening who's younger that doesn't exist anymore. Maybe it does, <laughs> but when you had to read a you know an essay or had to read notes. a book, you know, cliff notes for high school, and you're like, oh shoot, I, I didn't read it. It's due tomorrow. Um, the idea of if someone's unsure about you, it's not worth it. Mm. Right. I love that line. But to me, the question I had was at what point does that decision need to be made? Because when you first start with someone, I really hope that you're not like, this is the person after, after, after like a date or two. Right. And if you're that confident, kudos to you and you're ready to like commit I don't know how healthy that is. <laughs> I don't um, know if I would say kudos. <laughs> no, but like, okay, your mind, I'm saying like a happier, fulfilling, like your mindset is like, oh, I'm happy. But like, and I wouldn't jump so fast. Yeah. But at what point is that uncertainty a concern for a relationship or just the nature of being in a new relationship? Yeah. I mean, I think it's both, right? It's like a yes and. It's like, I think we have to provide and allow for the space of being in the unknown to exist. And by the way, this is my this is kind of my issue that I have with traditional romantic relationships in this societal structure that we live in because again just because you marry me does not mean you are mine. It does not mean that I am guaranteed or promised something forever and ever yeah. until death to us part. I'm sorry, it doesn't. Like right. you don't you don't own me and I don't own you and the thing is is that we think that the second there's a ring on our finger, we're not going to get hurt. Mm-hmm. That person could go out tomorrow and fall in love with somebody else. That person could go out tomorrow and get hit by a bus. Right? You're not promised anything. None of this is promised by the way. Right. So the idea of the ambivalence, I mean, I think for me, so to give a little context for people who haven't read the book, there was a lot of ambivalence in the beginning of the relationship from John to me. And it wasn't that I was the person that was like, oh, I know this is it. I didn't know that he was the person I was going to be with. It's just that I have a very strong practice and I've had for a very long time of trying to get out of my head and into my body. And so I remember the conversations with him where he was so in his head about not knowing, not knowing the breakers. We were so different. There were all of these things. And he's like, well, how do you know? And I remember being like, I don't know. Like, again, I'm not, I don't know what level 100 brings, you know, I'm only on two, but I remember saying to him, like in this moment, I'm enjoying this in this moment, my body is saying, this feels right. This feels good. I feel happy. I'm enjoying time with you. I want to see you again tomorrow. Right. And that is all I have to go on. I don't have anything else to go on. I don't want to dissect this more than that because again, this being in the head, that's that's not helpful for any of us. We live so much of our head, so much of our lives in our head and we're so disconnected from again our body, our intuition, right? Our our even our spiritual selves. Our spiritual selves don't live in our head. Right? So, um I think that was hard for him. I don't think he had really ever had anybody say that to him before. Like, get out of your head, man. Like, this shit's good. And it did hit a point where I said, like, I know this is good. And so I'm not here to convince you. I have no desire to convince you. Uh, That's not my role. No, thank you. And I I essentially told him to shit or get off the pot. I was like, listen, like, you either want to see where this goes or you don't. But I don't want to feel like I have to convince somebody that I'm fucking awesome. Like you either know that I'm fucking awesome and you want to try and see where this goes or you don't. And then there's the door. No hard feelings, by the way, with love. Um, But that whole place of me feeling like I have to 
prove my worthiness. Like I have to somehow convince somebody to love me. Fuck that. I've let go of that shit, right? I've done a lot of work around that. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us have that similar kind of wounding, right? The not enough, I'm too much, that lovely double-sided coin. And John was a really good opportunity for me to look at that and be like, yeah, no, nope. I choose me. I'm awesome. This could be cool. This could be great. You're either in it or you're not. Um, but make the choice because I'm not convincing you of it. And right uh, there is, I think, one of the most important things that if you and you say this also in the book, and I, I just think this way, no offense, is just said better than written. <laughs> yeah. Just because your passion while saying it doesn't always come through just, you know, writing. Of course. If someone doesn't be doesn't want to be with you, you know. Stop trying to convince them to stay with you. Mm-hmm. If they don't want to, but if they want to, you're going to yeah. know it. Yeah. Because they're going to fight personal. It. It's not personal. Stop personalizing it. That was that was the big revelation for me, right? Was like when I was able to say to him, I know I'm fucking great. And I don't need to convince you of that. Like, and and I'm not personalizing it. Like, if you feel like this is just not a fit, then okay, this is yeah. just not a fit. And that's fine. And we can still walk away amicably. And I'm not going to say I hate you. And it's this big dramatic thing. That's cool. That's your choice, you know? Um, but I'll be over here loving on myself and I don't need to convince you that I'm great, you know? Um, I think that was the biggest takeaway for me in that moment was like, I don't need to convince anybody that I'm worthy of love. I don't need to convince anybody that I'm awesome. I know it. And it was probably one of the first times that I had that like visceral experience of knowing that, like really feeling it. Um, and I think there was something in that actually that made John come around was like, oh shit, this girl really knows her her value. She knows her worth. And um, it might be one of the first times I've been with somebody who truly did. And so maybe I should like stick around. Maybe it's um, a good thing, you know? <laughs> I have like two two kind of more focused questions uh, before we wrap up or end because we're getting towards like the end is I, we talked before recording about the belief that I've had about the giving tree for mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. And when you said it in the book, I'm like, finally, finally someone who's been doing this longer than me, who has years on me, maturity of uh, above my years, who is writing, writing an official book saying, hey, this is crap because it's mm-hmm. teaching a lesson that is unhealthy. And one of your expertise is codependency. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the giving tree and the codependency issue that we have in so many of our hearts, our stories, our experiences that shape our relationships and sometimes destroy or really stop us from really being in a healthy, good relationship. Yeah. I mean, it has definitely become the flag that I wave. Uh, I I started my own codependency journey. I was about 26. Um, you know, sort of going to Al-Anon, sort of really trying to understand what this was, what this uh, constant state of resentment was, this constant state of disappointment was, this let da- feeling let down, my expectations were too high, all of this stuff. And I really came to understand that it is just the air we breathe. I mean, it is the society we live in, you know, from our fairy tales to our movies to uh, our song lyrics um, to even the way that the laws are written about marriage. I mean, it is just, it's every fiber of our society is a codependent society. Uh, You know, codependency says, if you're good, I'm good. If you're not good, I'm not good. 
my sense of self, my sense of emotional uh, equilibrium is based outside of myself. Uh, it's based on that external. Like we were saying earlier, you know, we are raised learning that it, it's more important that I pay attention to what's going on outside of myself than inside of myself, right? And this is also what capitalism does. It's like buy, buy, buy to make yourself something versus go inward and and learn and understand who you are at your core and know that you are born. It is your birthright to be worthy, right? We find worth outside of ourselves. It's every factor of our society that we live in. So of course, it, it trickles into our relationships, right? This goes back to this idea of like, I own you, you own me. I owe you something, you owe me something. It's a very transactional type of relationship versus I see you as this sovereign being that you are. I am also a sovereign being. We come together to create something larger than ourselves. But that that union is the cherry on the Sunday. It's not my Sunday. You are not my Sunday. Right. So many of us in a codependent society make the other person or make the relationship our higher power mm-hmm. rather than knowing that the higher power is actually within us. Mm. And this person in my this person in my life is just an addition. It's just an added benefit. That's it. Mm. Right. And they're not beholden to me. They could walk out tomorrow. Again, none of it's promised. And so I better treat them with reverence. And I better, you know, um, respect the relationship and I better do these things, not better. Like there's something that's going to happen to me bad, but just if I look at this person, like something to behold and, and cherish, I'm going to be very different in that relationship than looking at them as something that I can own and -hmm. control. Mm. Right. And, um, and so, yeah, the giving tree to me always rubbed me wrong. Like I remember ever since a little kid, I was I love Shell Service Team, always have, but I just sort of not loving that book. And uh, when my daughter was gifted it, you know, like you were saying before we jumped on, all kids are, I just started reading it and being like, this story is bullshit. <laughs> like this stump just gives and gives and gives. Well, she was a tree at some point, right? And this a kid beautiful, just magnificent keeps, tree. Yes. And keeps taking and taking and taking. And she never says no. She never speaks up for herself. And, uh, she ends up what? She ends up sad, lonely stump. And by the way, he ends up sad and lonely too, which I think actually is the a great most lesson. important lesson in that book is that neither of them end up happy because that's yeah. what happens in codependent relationships, right? Um, they both end up sad and, and essentially lonely just sitting next to each other. You know, I didn't think about the last part though, but, and the hard part is that the tree tries to get attention. So just play with me. It's like, oh, I know I just need your things. Just be with me. Just be with me. See me. Yeah. And I think that if you look at the research by Gottman, right, um, whether you like everything they say or some of the things they say, one of the basic foundations is respecting the person that you're with because of who they are. And if you can't, that says one, a lot about you. Mm-hmm. And two, that the healthiness of the relationship is not there. because. Yeah. No matter how much fighting there might be or disagreements or, you know, contrasts and breakers and all the terminologies that you and John put your heart and soul into this, into this book and into the concepts that you truly believe and practice every day. Mm-hmm. If I don't respect the person next to me and like them, that's it. screw that. Respect. You just got to care about this person, respect them for who they are and the, the journey mm-hmm. that they're on devoid of where you're at. And if, we, if I can give my person respect. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk to them differently. I'm going to treat them differently. 
I'm going to give them kindness and compassion because I respect them. Not because I expect something in return. Exactly. It's that and that alone. It's not because, oh, if I do this, we're going to have great sex later. If I I do this- I don't treat my kids kindly because I expect them to treat me kindly. Let's be real. Kids are assholes. Yeah, my daughter never says thank you. She's three and a half years old. I got an eleven month old hey, little take, boy. Take, 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 take. That's free what kids loaders. do. That's what kids do, right? But I'm, I still love them, and I'm still, yeah. I still treat them well, not because I expect anything in return. And that's a very similar way that we need to look at our romantic relationships. Now, that doesn't say become a doormat, yeah. because again, you have to decide what your value in a relationship is. Um, but you're right. I think it's more I mean, the intention. Respect. It's the intention, and respect it's more the is the intention foundational. And I, and I would say one of the biggest, um, I guess, takeaways that I, I'm, I've really started to ruminate on and kind of sit with is this idea. It's very simple. And a lot of people want me to go deeper and I almost won't is just love them for who they are or leave them the hell alone. Mm. Mm, I love that. That's, and, and I, that's why I love your content and just your thought process. I'm very big on simplifying relationships because there's so much simplicity that we can create in a relationship. We complicate of, everything. We complicate everything. And you said, especially <laughs> the head and everything there. Last question I really have is something that I truly noticed with just your content in general and just the book itself and the, the, the bits that you have shared of the relationship, which is no one else's right or need to know, but the, the things that you have expressed. One of the biggest things that I noticed that I think is so important is the honesty and the ability to create a space that is safe emotionally or mm. emotional security. How have you guys done that? And what are the suggestions you have for people who might be listening or will listen or whatever piece of advice you have for creating that emotional safety or security and the ability to be honest and real without taking it personally, without mm-hmm. you know defensiveness, or but just sharing an expression of self and is taken and then dealt with? How do you create that environment or even have that environment in a relationship? I mean, look, we get defensive. Yeah. We, um, you know, we do a lot of the things that we talk about how not to do because like you said earlier, we're human, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think for us, our biggest, I guess, like practice what we preach, the biggest thing that we try to do is uh, come back to the table. So whether we've taken a break because things get too heated, whatever it might be. Um, and, and this is another Johnism and I really love it. It's, it's really what he says about trying to understand before trying to be understood. One of the biggest, most pivotal game changers for me in my relationship, um, and to create that kind of safety and that space to be real and be authentic and be vulnerable is to provide him to give him what it is that I want in return, which is this, I want to try to understand him before attempting to make myself be understood. Right Mm -hmm. now I might not agree, which I think a lot of us expect that if I say that I understand somebody, or if I say that I see where they're coming from, or that I'm at least trying that I'm somehow saying that they're right or that I agree with them. And that is not the case. Right. I might not agree, but I can attempt to see my person and respect them enough to try to see where they're coming from. Try to see why the story they're telling themselves is X, Y, and Z, because I know their story and I know their history and I might know why they jumped to that conclusion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think when I when I put that hat on, it helps me depersonalize. It helps me, um, again, continue to provide safety as much as I can. And 
the more I provide it to him, the more he also in turn wants to provide it to me. Um, we're not perfect at it. You know, we, we say things that sometimes can be cruel to each other. We, we yell. So, well, not really a big yeller. I'm, I'm more of the shutdown person, but he's more of the, the, the loud person, but you know, we have our habits. And at, at the end of the day, when we come back together, I want him to know that I'm trying to understand where he's coming from. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's one of the biggest takeaways I would say. I love that. The understand thing. Cause I think a lot of times you guys wrote in the book, but I think a lot of people have this platform or this, uh, consistent pattern they throw in, which is, yeah, I validate you, but, but. Bah, 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 let me prove my point. Let me explain why. And it just, and I know, I know I have to work on this. I do that often with my wife mm-hmm. and I know, I know I do that. Um, cause I feel I need to, for whatever reason, share my opinion or share my, my proof of concept or why I argued or why I got upset versus going, yeah, that, that was pretty crappy of me, or that was not so great. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And there's always another time mm-hmm. for just a simple conversation. That's not heated, not built in yeah. with the argument that I can say, Hey, you know, I was thinking about something that I know about myself is dot, 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 dot. Yeah. Now, you know, now there's awareness, but in that moment saying, but just takes away everything. Totally. I know I've had to do a lot of work on myself to figure out and, and be aware of that. And the last thing I would ask is, you know, you have all this wealth of knowledge that's not in this book, right? Because this book is kind of focused. I know you have retreats and all these things, and I would love to hear about that. Before that is, if anyone didn't listen to anything we just said or didn't read your book, what would be one or two kind of simple relationship truths or things that you feel in your heart that you think are really worth sharing? Oh, okay. I might repeat a couple, but I, I it could would be say, seventeen if you'd like. You know, it doesn't. I know. Have to be I mean, I think it's. I think it's really starting to unpack and take personal responsibility for the codependent ways that we exist in relationships, right? Um, It's all about owning your 100%. It's all about keeping your side of the street clean. It's all about focusing on self. Take that finger that you have pointing outward and turn that shit around towards yourself, okay? Because you are the only person that you have control over on this planet. That's it. No one else. So stop trying to control everybody else and turn the finger around on yourself. I'm very big on personal responsibility. Um, Love that. Yeah. The the other one I would give is to go back to that trying to understand before trying to be understood because I think that can be a game changer in any relationship, not just romantic ones, right? Mm. Um, I Especially intimate relationships where I know this person well, if I can give them the grace of attempting to understand where they're coming from, the respect of, I know you, I know your story. Um, I know your intent is not what it might be in this moment, you know, as you're lashing out at me or whatever the case might be. Um, I think in general, we would have a lot more satisfying and and vulnerable and connecting relationships if we can provide that to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, this idea of kind of owning owning your part, you're also doing that for you. Because this is the the crossroads where you get to stop personalizing, where you get to stop being defensive, where you get to stop stonewalling, where you get to stop, you know, leaning on all of your bad habits as your kind of protective mechanisms. It's in that grace that I give another person that, that like, I'm going to see you for who you are, regardless of how you're behaving right now. When I'm able to act out of grace, I give myself something too. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important for people to understand. I'm giving you grace for you. I mean, sure, somewhat, but I'm giving you grace for me too. Because I don't want to live in the space of anger and resentment and just that hardened, icky feeling that comes from it. So um, 
understanding that giving grace is is just as good for you as for the other person. I love those things. And to wrap up, I know you got a lot of stuff going on, speaking opportunities. You got this wonderful book. Um, and I know you have some retreats coming up. If you can share some of the stuff where people can learn more about it and, and figure out, and it's going to be in the show notes also, what so people can hear from your energy and your excitement about what's happening. Yeah. So definitely follow me if you don't already on, um, mostly on Instagram, uh, Vanessa S Bennett, but also, um, on TikTok too, uh, as the Cody Yoda <laughs> and then, um, but yeah, I've got some stuff. So I've got a couple live communities that are launching soon, actually probably about March 1st are going to be live. So some deeper codependency work going on, some deeper work with, um, motherhood, especially is going to be coming up. I'm working on a book right now. My, my next book around that. Um, there's going to be just a lot of opportunity, I think, to connect with me more off, off of the social medias. And then I have another week long intensive. I do a couple of year coming up in June in Costa Rica. So if, you know, getting into community and, and digging in deep is your thing, please join us. These weeks are transformational. So we're actually going live with it on social this week. So, um, by the time this airs, it'll be at the link in my bio, my social. Amazing. Vanessa, thank you so much for being on the show. I truly thank admire you, you and the work you do. Um, and I uh, really, really appreciate everything you're bringing. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me on, Eli. I'm glad we were able to do this. Thank you so much to listening to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist. And it only is happening because of you, the listeners, tuning in every week, even twice a week, to this show all about mental health, relationships, and wellness topics. And really, let's be honest, everything in between. And I'm so excited to show up every time and having great guests. So thank you. And if you have any questions, concerns, ideas, collaborations, email me at thedudetherapist at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram at thedudetherapist. Let me know what you're thinking. Let me know your ideas can't wait to hear from you. And if you can go along, subscribe, rate, review on all the streaming sites that you're listening on. I truly appreciate it because that's what makes this thing happen. So thanks for tuning in this week and see you next time on the Dude Therapist Podcast. We've got more guests and more great content coming your way.